morning, Grace. The reading this morning is Genesis chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless the youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to evil in Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, 
As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servants, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety to the boy, for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Thank you, Krista. All right, full, full disclosure, I was asked to leave band in fifth grade or after fifth grade, and I'm fairly confident I'm at least 75% tone deaf. And yet, with that disclaimer, there is no worship team on the planet I would rather worship with than these guys. Thank you very much. There's no songs I'd rather sing. There's no people I would rather hear doing music than you guys. Uh, Very thankful for the opportunity you give us week after week to take these truths with the, I don't even know how to say this, but God has put something of music in our hearts uh, such that the truths resonate differently when we sing them to a, a tune and you guys do an awesome job with that. Thank you very much. Pastor Mike as well did a great job preaching through uh, chapter 43 last week while our family was in Michigan celebrating my parents' 50th anniversary. Daniel and I were thankful to listen to it on the way back, and I was especially helped by, Mike, your reminder from the text of This is my paraphrase, but how silly it is for Christians to believe there is no way out of hard situations, the hard situations we face, or that there is some hard situations from which no good could come by God's hand. Those things I I wish, they're too easy for me to forget, and I'm thankful for faithful preaching like yours to remind me of that. Well, Mike's sermon in Genesis chapter 43 ended with Joseph's brothers unexpectedly eating and drinking and making merriment. The text says in amazement uh, uh, with with what they thought to be, at least it was their brother, but they thought it to be the governor of Egypt. They'd been nervous that they were heading into a, a trap, that they were heading into danger, but instead they were invited to a private party as the guests of honor. That's where we left off last week. Well, with the party over, Joseph is about to send his brothers back home and off to one final exam. This is the last exam. In chapter 44, then, we find one last round of testing. We've had several chapters, all the way back to 37, several chapters of testing to see the, to, to see <laughs> whether or not the brothers, these Previously treacherous, godless brothers had truly become men of God, men of covenant faithfulness. This was God's plan. This is what God was working out. One last test to see if it had in fact taken place. And the main thing for us to see then, the one thing I hope all of you really hold on to from this text is this. Life is filled with tests from God. It's filled with them. Every trial and every success that we experience, every difficulty and every joy, every tear and every laughter. The one thing I really hope you hold on to from this text is that passing God's tests is only possible by God's grace. 
Would you remember that? You're going to experience them every day, every minute of every day in one sense. And passing them is only possible by God's grace. Grace he freely gives to all who come to him in faith. How awesome is that, Grace Church? How awesome is our God? Let's pray. God, there is so much here, as always. As Matt prayed earlier in the prayer room, there is just so much here. And, and, and as we see elsewhere in the Bible, even in the New Testament, to, to mine all of it is to fill more books than this room could contain. Perhaps this whole world could contain. There is so much glory and goodness and correction and rebuke and and encouragement. And there is so much here that we can see as, as you work out your plan of redemption for your people through a particular people, ethnic in one sense. But we, we know that it was even here, this, this family, this, They were tied together ultimately by the faith of their forefather, Abraham. Not his flesh, not his gene pool, but his faith. There is so much here, both for in in its immediate context and also what it points us to in Jesus, who would come as the true covenant fulfiller. We love that. I love that there's more here than I could possibly say. There's, I love that there's more here than I could possibly understand. I love that I get to share some of it. God, make us a people filled with awe and wonder, both at, or awe and wonder at the God that you are, that you're greater than we could ever imagine, at the sin that is in us, that's revealed to us, and in the fact that we are far more and more ways like Judah than we would ever care to imagine, the earlier Judah, but that those two things combined fill us with awe and wonder that it is the grace of the cross alone that can bring them together. Given who you are and your holiness, awesome splendor, and who we are and our sin and rebellion and treason and folly, and you just shouldn't be able to come together, and we couldn't apart from your sovereign grace, worked out perfectly in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his suffering and death and resurrection. So God, fill us uh, <laughs> fill us with repentance, fill us with godly grief, fill us with a, an awareness of our sin only that we could look most fully to Jesus and know all of the forgiveness and freedom that he offers. Like Mike said earlier, not to those who do all the right things or get it all right on our own, but trust that Jesus did. I pray that all of that and more would be clear to us in this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the private dinner party, the private unexpected dinner party is over, and Joseph was about to send his brothers home. Once again, however, he would do so with a test. One final faithfulness exam. He'd already, just a brief recap of the tests that they'd already endured at his hand. He'd already tested their honesty. He checked out their background. Of course, he knew the answer, but he, he just wanted to see if they would tell the truth, and they did. He'd already tested their integrity by turning up some pressure on their lives, by making a false accusation of being spies against them. He tested their father's trust in them, did did, the, did their father, which of course was his father too, 
Did he trust them enough to send Benjamin back with them? He turned up, he dialed up the pressure and to test them again by putting them in prison for several days to see if they'd turn on one another or change their story. He tested their loyalty by forcing them to leave one of their brothers behind while they went back to get Benjamin. Would they just ditch him and leave him and chalk it up as collateral damage? He'd secretly tested them to see if they were sorry for their sins against him by listening in on a conversation they didn't know he could understand. He tested them by putting money back in their sacks when they returned home to see what they would do. And he tested them to see if they were still jealous. In the last chapter, he he gave the new favorite of the father, their father, a five times portion over dinner. He tested them again to see if they were still jealous over the blessing of another. To this point, if you've been with us through Genesis, you know they had passed every one of these tests. They'd shown a brand brand new sin-restraining fear of the Lord, brand new repentance over their sin, integrity under pressure, honesty, and even gladness over the good fortune of others. God was indeed making them into the faithful people that he had called them to be. But again, they still had one final exam to go. How would they do? Again, look at verse 1. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, my own cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And the steward did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city, the text tells us. And now Joseph said to his steward, go, get them. (laughs) Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say, why in the world would you repay all this good that I have shown you with evil? Is it not from that, the cup that my Lord drinks, And by this, that he practices divination, i got to say a word on that in a little bit, you have done this evil thing. As has been the case several times already, Joseph acts curiously here. What's he he doing? Why is he doing this? It, It seems like entrapment, right? It is in a certain sense. And especially, why would he target Benjamin? Once again, and I hope to help you see this plainly, The answer is that Joseph was, by God's design, doing what he could to ensure the godly character of his brothers before inviting them back into fellowship and new physical and spiritual blessings as God's chosen people. God had chosen them to be a light to the entire world as a people. And Joseph was doing this to ensure that their character was in line with their calling. So the issue that they're charged with by the steward here, as we learned last week, was not the money. That was a gift from Joseph. It was the cup. As Joseph had set this up, he he had been kind and generous, even if a little bit tricky to these guys. Even though he'd accused them of being spies, he did provide a clear way for them to prove their innocence. Return with Benjamin. He'd only required one brother to remain as collateral until they did. He'd given them grain for free, not once, but twice when the the land was filled with a famine. 
He'd invited them into his home, even as his honored guests. He, he had poured out blessing upon blessing to them. The charge was that they'd repaid all of this with the evil of stealing his drinking and divination cup. Now, I wrote a, a chunk. If you want to know more about this, you can go online and read the manuscript later. There, there's a bunch to be said, or at least some to be said, about this divination cup. But but the short version is this. Joseph was was acting as a character. And the, the governor of Egypt would have been really familiar with divination. There's different ways they would have done it. And he's playing a character as a part of administering this final exam to his brothers. There's nothing more than that. He wasn't actually using a cup for divination, something that would have been, was soon to be prohibited for all of Israel. Well, here's the next chunk. Having sent the brothers off, his steward and his steward after them, Joseph's steward quickly caught up to this band of brothers and did just as his master had instructed. And so the question before us again is the final exam. How would the brothers respond to this? Understandably, they were caught off guard, even if not entirely surprised. Their whole time in Egypt had been pretty wonky. Just read the last few chapters if you don't know what I mean by that. But all kinds of weird commands and tests and The reply was understandable, though. They said to him, why does my Lord speak these words to us? Remember, they don't know yet that the cup or the money are in their sacks. They're they're just heading back. Why, Why would you speak this way? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold... This has happened once before, and we showed ourselves faithful. The the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks before we brought back to you from the land of Canaan, if we did that, why would we steal your silver or gold? Why, Why would we do that? They wondered how an accusation could even be made in light of the fact that they'd depend that that they had demonstrated their innocence and integrity, hadn't. Hadn't they just, they said to the steward, hadn't we just proved ourselves twice by following through on the promise to bring Benjamin back and show we not we weren't spies and bringing the money back that we didn't even know how it got in our sacks? Why then would we compromise ourselves before a man who holds our lives in his hands? Why would we do that? That makes sense, right? Certainly, even if naively, they proclaimed their innocence. They said, they said, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. Well, that, that, you know, crank that up real fast. And also, not only that, whoever did it will die, but the rest of us will be your servants. And the servant said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, but the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered their sacks to the ground and each opened their sack and he searched, the steward searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And in the end, dramatically, it's not in the first, it's not in the second, all the way down to the tenth, it was found, or the eleventh, it was found in Benjamin's sack. And here is the genius. You think, why is he doing this? Why, what's up with this entrapment? Here's the genius of Joseph's final exam. Do you already see it? I hope some of you see it. What's he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's recreating a situation almost identical to the one in which his brothers betrayed him. You get that? Remember just several chapters ago, his brothers were in almost the exact same situation. It was the one in which their greatest act of treachery was performed. 
when they betrayed Joseph. We're going to kill him and then sold him. He was recreating the situation. Let me tell you what I mean. But he did it with an even more tempting manner and in a more tempting way. If they gave in before with much less to gain, would they, would they give in here with more to gain? Benjamin had become the replacement favorite for their father. It used to be Joseph, the son of the technicolored dream coat, right? And now it was, now it was Benjamin. He was the new favorite. He got the favorite isolated. He got him away from the protection of his father's watchful and watchful eye and protective hand, just like Joseph had been earlier. This time, though, by betraying the brother, instead of merely gaining a few pieces of silver like they did for him, they would gain their own freedom and even their own lives. The conditions were almost identical, even though the stakes were higher. It seems the brothers themselves recognized some of this. We'll see that in verse 16. So what would they do? Here it is. He'd run them through the gauntlet. They'd had lots of lesser tests. But here in the final test, by God's design, he recreated the same scene in which their greatest treachery had been performed. What would they do? Would they revert to the attitudes and behaviors of chapter 37 and betray Benjamin as they had him? Or would they somehow prove that the change in them that seemed to be the case was real? That their character would match the covenant? If anything was to finally, if anything were to be finally able to answer these questions, this, this was it. Was there genuine heart change? This is how we can find out. That's the point of the last section. The first thing the brothers did was in finding the cup and their youngest brother's sack was to experience shock in a type of fear, we can tell from their reaction. Instead of proving their innocence, they were presented with the worst possible situation. Not only that the cup had been found in one of their sacks, but that it was in Benjamin. And so <laughs> first thing they did was experience shock and fear. The second thing that they did was to accompany Benjamin and the steward back to Egypt to face certain judgment. Verse 13 says they they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. The question again, this final exam was what would they do when they got there? Would Would they throw them under the bus? What would they do? The very fact that they didn't abandon him Already was a good start. Presumably, according to the steward's terms, they would have been free to turn Benjamin over. Here he is, take him, this rotten scoundrel, and continue on their way. Again, that's what they had done with Joseph. How easy would this have been, Grace? This was the test. This is how it had been set up. How easy would it have been? Jacob would have been crushed for sure, but they, but it wouldn't have been difficult to save their own necks by handing Benjamin over to the steward and concocting another believable story for their father? It wouldn't have been hard. It would have been easy. Instead, again, they had returned to Egypt with Benjamin and even went before Joseph on on his behalf. Look at 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Remember, by the steward's terms, all of them innocent except Benjamin. But they all fell before him on the ground. In another act of dream, fulfillment, and humiliation, Joseph's brothers bowed before him. 
continuing to play his role and administering the final exam, Joseph asked his brothers, what is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? In other words, he asked them, do you not think that I would find out that you stole my cup? How foolish can you be to think me such a fool? In response, Joseph's brother Judah spoke up, verse 16, and he said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? And here's the key line. God has found out the guilt of your servants. He knew they weren't guilty of the crime they had just been accused of committing. So in what way were they guilty? Please notice two things from this verse. First, it was Judah, not Reuben, as had been the case before, who took charge. He is the one through whom the line of Jesus would come. His speech and sacrificial acts were not only important as one of God's chosen covenant people, but also to highlight the sweetness of the Savior coming from his line. And the second thing to notice from that simple verse, verse 16, it is plain that the brothers understood the hand of God over all of this. They knew this wasn't ultimately about them and this governor of Egypt. They knew it wasn't ultimately about that. They knew that God's hand was over all of this. In their mind... These things were happening ultimately as an act of divine justice against them for their earlier sins against Joseph. Their unresolved guilt had become clear to them, as well as the fact that through this, this this injustice on the surface, God was now holding them accountable for their treachery. It is for that reason, not that they had actually stolen the cup or the money or anything like that, but it was for that reason that Judah exclaimed, God has found guilt, found out the guilt of your servants. He must have imagined in saying this that the, the governor standing before him heard this as an admission of his own theft. He must have thought that. In reality, however, Joseph knew exactly what this meant. Imagine how warming this must have been to his heart. Because the brothers knew all this was God's doing, they also knew that their only recourse was to confess, repent, and entrust themselves to the mercy of God. As a result, Judah offered all the brothers into the servitude of the steward to Joseph. It was as if Judah, spokesman for all ten, recognized this as the judgment of God, recognized the futility of trying to stand up against it any longer, Futility of standing up against this judgment that they had so long avoided. And they resigned themselves. Hear this grace. They resigned themselves to accept the punishment for a crime they didn't commit as the just penalty for the one that they did. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also he in whose hand the cup has been found. This was a noble gesture and another right answer on the final exam. Joseph had some other plans, as you can imagine. Verse 17, far be it for me that you all become my servants. Far be that, far be it that that would be the case. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for the rest of you, go in peace to your father. Again, here's another chance. Another chance for them to say, all right, we tried. See ya. Good luck, Benji. Even though Judah had offered all of them up for the sake of the guilt of the one, I hope that rings some bells in your mind, Joseph would hold Benjamin alone responsible. And that led to a remarkable, 
heartwarming and finally confirming speech by Judah. Begging Joseph, this governor of the land, to hear him out, Judah recapped their earlier encounter with him, their journey home, their father's grief over the loss of the first of Rachel's sons, Joseph, his fear over the possibility of losing the second, Benjamin, their ultimate follow-through and bringing the money and Benjamin back with them. He went on, Judah went on to explain that what would certainly happen if they were to go home without Benjamin was their father's grief-stricken death. He acknowledged his own responsibility, his own acceptance of responsibility to prevent this from happening. Most impressively at all, of all, in the last of all of the tests, Judah offered to take Benjamin's place and punishment in verse 33. In so doing, he showed a new and genuine faithfulness to God, as well as a new and genuine love and compassion for his father and his brother. Listen to the words of verse 33. He pleaded, Judah pleaded, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. These are some of the sweetest words in the entire Old Testament, some of the clearest gospel allusions in the entire Old Testament. They must draw to mind, to our minds, Jesus' own words in John's gospel, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. But Grace, get this, because here's where the gospel is so clear. We need to remember that these were the words, these words of Judah in verse 33, these were the same words, the words of the same man who hated Joseph because his father loved him and then hated him more and more to the point where he couldn't even speak to him because of a revelation from God to Joseph. This was the same Judah who lustfully and callously married a woman that God had forbidden him to back in chapter 37. This was the same Judah who selfishly and dishonestly deprived his twice-widowed daughter-in-law of a husband back in 38. It was the same Judah who, thinking he was going into a prostitute, slept with his daughter-in-law, his widowed daughter-in-law. This was the same Judah who was happy to see his brother murdered and was held back not by compassion or conviction, but only because he realized that to have him murdered means I don't even get anything out of this. And so he was held back only by the selfish realization, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Instead of killing him, therefore, the same man who uttered the words of Genesis forty-four thirty-three, gladly sold his own brother for a few pieces of silver. Grace, do not miss what's happening here. The Judah of chapter 44 is not the Judah of chapters 37 and 38. God's grace had reached him and changed him. And his actions in this passage proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. How awesome is the kindness of God to work so th- to work in such a way as to so thoroughly transform one of such wickedness. Grace, how awesome is the kindness and work of God to so thoroughly transform every wicked one who calls on his name. That's the gospel, Grace. (laughs) You're Judah. 
You're not Joseph in this story until you have called upon the name of the Lord in faith. As we've seen over and over in Genesis, the beginning of salvation. If you are saved, it's because you've realized this. If you are to be saved, it's because you will realize this. The salvation that is offered to you today, the beginning of the salvation, the one that can be yours now, the beginning of salvation is in realizing that you were born Judah. That is, until you recognize that your own sin and rebellion against God is every bit as wicked as Judah's was and his brothers were. You cannot be saved. Until you see that, you cannot be saved. Do you see the hope that is in this? You need to. To hear this text rightly, we read it in light of what we know in the cross of Jesus. Hear this, hear this, hear this. In Judah's sin and God's grace for him, we see that no one is good enough not to need to be saved, but also that no one is bad enough to be outside of the unlimited reach of God's grace. So let me conclude with three lessons. Here's three lessons to take home. They're short, they're simple, they're super practical. Here are these. First, in this passage, in Joseph's brothers, and especially in Judah, we find a remarkable example of true repentance. Repentance that truly refuses to recommit a sin, even when there is every opportunity to do so, and even when there is a penalty for not recommitting it. What's more, true repentance refuses to recommit an old sin, not by a sheer act of the will. I might start with that, but it never ends with that, but by a changed appetite. The desire for the sin is no longer there where repentance is complete. We see evidence of this in the simple and glorious reality that the brothers didn't even ask Joseph for mercy. They didn't even ask him for mercy, but simply for an opportunity to be substitute sacrifices. That's awesome. Learn from Judah to look carefully for areas where this repentance is lacking in your grace. But learn also from Judah that wherever it is found or wherever it might be found, it is a gift from God. That's the first lesson. Here's the second. It's that God will certainly hear this. If you're a Christian, hear this. If you're a non-Christian, hear this. A second lesson is that God will certainly and completely bring about the sanctification of every one of his people. If you're hoping in Jesus, you may be wondering, why am I, why do I fall into sin so often? Why, why is it that I'm so tempted still in light of the grace of God that I know is in me through Jesus? God is doing this through a process, but believe this. He will certainly and completely bring about the sanctification of every one of his people. We get a snapshot of this in Judah. We have a promise for that in the New Testament in our lives. Grace, we know well, if you've been here at all, you know well that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what is easy to miss, for some reason, this is often not taught in the gospel, but it's part of the gospel. What's easy to miss is the fact that God has promised his people that the same grace that enables us to put our faith in Jesus and unites us with the saving work of Jesus on the cross, it's the same grace that enables us to place our faith in God at conversion that continues to work to make us holy. That's Romans 8.30. Let me say the same thing one more time in a little different way. 
when we place our faith in Jesus, this is a lesson that we see the beginning of in Judah. When we place our faith in Jesus, God's grace is such that he immediately declares us not guilty based on Jesus' righteousness. When we place our faith in Jesus, God's grace is such that instantaneously he declares us not guilty based on Jesus' righteousness, even as he also immediately begins to make us righteous. That's awesome. I don't think, I can see in your faces, you don't know how awesome that is yet. So let me tell you, that's awesome. That is such a gift. God has chosen this family, these children of Abraham, to be his covenant people on earth. And so he was turning them into faithful covenant representatives, even as he does so now for his new covenant people today. Let us learn, therefore, to work, grace, to work to become holy, which is God's command on your life, in the knowledge that God is certainly working that in you already. That's awesome. And here's the third lesson, last one. We see in this passage, and then again in the rest of the Bible, that loving self-sacrifice, loving self-sacrifice is one key mark of genuine sanctification. That is to say, one key mark of the saving grace of God on you. That is to say, one key mark that there is true repentance in you. One of the main ways we know that the saving grace of God has come upon us and that our repentance is genuine is this. The love and sacrifice, the the, the way we can know that the love and sacrifice of Jesus has really been imputed to us is, again, is this. When our natural impulse, you know, you walk around and you have all kinds of impulses, when that, that, those natural impulses are increasingly to love and lay your life down for the good of others, you know that the grace of God is on you in a saving way. Grace, here's your challenge. Give your life for the eternal lives of the people God puts in your path. Refuse to make this life, refuse to make this church, Refuse to make your job or your kids or your spouse or your friends or your hobbies. Refuse to make this life, this church, anything you encounter about you. If you heard me, you'd be convicted. And maybe there'd be some tearing of clothes like the brothers did. And So let me say that again, because you're doing this. I know you're doing this. I've seen you do this. You come into my office and you tell me you're doing this. And you're not even convicted about that. And I do that too. I tell you about that with me, unknowingly even sometimes. Let me say that again. Don't actually rip your clothes, at least not in here. But you would if you got this. Let me say it again. Give your lives for the eternal lives of the people that God puts in your path. Refuse to make this life or this church about you. Look to Judah, and then even more, look to Jesus, and determine in the Spirit's power to pour yourself out in love that others may know and live in the good news that you have received, that another has done that for you. And so the result of all of this, as we're going to see next week, we get a taste for the rest of Genesis. It's, it's going to be a sweet time together. We get a taste for the rest of Genesis of the new heavens and the new earth. The result of all of this, 
beginning next week, that we'll see when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers for who he really is, is a thorough and complete reconciliation. He holds nothing back. No more tests. Is a thorough and complete reconciliation and restitution. More than that. The result is a new and staggering kind of fellowship and blessing that he is going to invite this newly faithful, his newly faithful brothers into by God's design. In this then, we have an awesome, awesome picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with shadows and types of the true salvation that was to come in Jesus. Perhaps few clearer than the one here where God's grace alone or by God's grace alone, this family passed their final exam and was about to enter God's pleasure in an unimaginable and everlasting way. That same invitation is for you and me today as we look to Jesus. Would you do that now? And if you don't know what that means, come and talk to one of us afterwards so that we can help you understand the words of eternal life that are promised here through a picture and made certain through Jesus Christ and the cross.